Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. At the Tokyo Paralympics, the British athlete Kadena Cox took gold in the 500-metre time trial at the velodrome, setting a new world record in the process. As a runner, she was fourth in the T38 400-metres event. In Rio in 2016, she took gold, silver and bronze in athletics events and another gold at the velodrome. It's a remarkable achievement and Kadena is one of the standout stars of Ruler Issue 109, Enable entirely devoted to Paralympic and disabled athletes. In this interview, Kadina says she doesn't like using the word inspiring, but you can make your own mind up about that. Before the illness that changed her life, she was already a keen athlete. Yeah, I guess I was just one of those people that did pretty much every sport. If there was a sport I could do that wasn't a racket sport, I would get involved. And this carried on sort of to your late teens and early 20s, did it? I mean, you were were a pretty good sprinter, weren't you? I did um, kind of all sports and like got involved with like school sports, but I mainly focused on athletics and hockey throughout my um, late teens. And at the back end of my, my, um, my teens, I was yeah, really moving forward with my athletics and hoping to kind of take it to the next level. And then in 2014, you had a stroke followed by um, a diagnosis of MS. Did that sort of come completely out of the blue to you? Yeah, I was doing my second degree, an athlete, really healthy, uh, minus the odd few student nights. And yeah, just kind of like I ate well the most part and just I didn't really feel I don't know, it was a bit of a surprise. Like you just don't expect to, you know, be told you've had a stroke when you're 23 and an athlete. Did you consider sort of stopping sport or was it always something that you were you were going to carry on with? I think when I had my um, MS diagnosis, that was a massive blow just because, you know, with the stroke, it's, you know, you've had a stroke okay, I've had this life event, let's get over it and move forward. Um, Whereas with MS, it's kind of, I've had this life event, but I could have another one in a couple of weeks, a couple of months, a couple of years. And it's something I'm kind of stuck with for the rest of my life. So initially I was a bit like, oh my God, what am I going to do? The consultant that came in and spoke to my mum, me and my mum both kind of looked at each other and was like, will she still be able to run? And he kind of was like, it might take some time, but I, I don't see why there would be massive problems. So I just kind of 
grabbed onto that hope and was like, okay, this is what's going to get me through being able to be an athlete, you know, focus on like my goals and you know, making myself better. It's kind of what, what I know. That's all I've known. You know, I've done sport my whole life. And in that moment, it was kind of like, okay, this is what's going to help me get through this next phase. And then, yeah, the more I got into it, the more I realized that I had a good opportunity, not just for myself personally as a sports person, but with the opportunity to try to help other people with chronic conditions. Well, you not only carried on running, you also took up cycling. What was the thinking behind that? Was there any thinking? It was kind of... Um, so when I was at university, I was a scholarship athlete. We kind of had access to a scholarship gym and like the, the vibe was good in there. Like the scholars from uh, Manchester Met and Manchester University were all in there and my SNC coach was really good. And I just wanted to get back around elite level athletes and just kind of be in that environment to help kind of push me on. So I went in, like my SNC coach was like, come in, Cad, like, we'll see what we can do. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll start with the basics and we can work through it. And uh, we did, like, we literally like started with like body weight movements, just like squats and lunges and help me with the movements, you know, help me with balance. And, and then he'd be like, okay, like there wasn't very much we could do. So I'd kind of do like a couple of things and then I'd just chill and watch everyone else. And there was a what bike that was at the front of the, like the front of the gym. And he was just like, hop on, hop on the what bike card. Like the only thing that's going to happen is gonna, you're going to fall off to the side. So you might as well, you know, sit on there and, you know, pedal a little bit and help your fitness rather than just sitting and watching everyone. And as the weeks went by, we kind of realized that, you know, hey, she, she's putting out some decent power me having no idea because cycling was so far removed from me at that point in life. And there was another girl who was actually trying to transfer from swimming to cycling who had a contact detail and I had a contract because I was actually trying prior to getting ill, I was trying to, uh, I was looking at transferring to Bob Skeleton and she kind of got me in contact with the transfer person from the parasite who had suggested canoeing or track cycling and I was like, well, I can't swim. I've been doing this pedaling malarkey and someone said my powers are all right. So let's try that. And I did one testing session with um, British Cycling. And um, I now know the physiologist said to uh, the head coach, you need to get her on program now. And did you actually sort of start your cycling at, at Manchester Velodrome then? I did, yeah. So I, I, like I say, I was at University of Manchester, trained across the road at the Etihad for athletics and I'd never spotted this velodrome that's not very small um, on the opposite side and yeah so I um started in there with um I'd do sessions with the uh, head coach at the time John Norfolk I'd do sessions with him at like seven in the morning and the first one was literally just let's see what she can do on a bike because I'd not rode a bike in years never rode a fixed wheel bike um, and was kind of relearning how to do a lot of things just because of my um MS at that point and how it was affecting me so I literally had to relearn or learn how to ride a bike but learn how to do it on a fixed wheel which was great until I then tried to ride a road bike yeah that didn't end so well in the beginning well because you didn't know how to stop it yep exactly that didn't know how to stop didn't know how to change gears didn't quite figure out the whole clipping out without having a fence next to me it was fun <laughs> but you got um you know clearly got a lot better at riding a bike um, and essentially carried on doing um, the two sports uh, side by side, didn't you? I did, yeah, which um, 
I now realize it was a really silly idea <laughs> I mean, a lot harder than um, people realize I think people see that I do it and they're like oh two sports is easy like there's been athletes that have tried it there was a, an athlete who I trained with uh, Laura Sugar she tried to do canoeing and um, athletics alongside each other and figured out pretty quickly that it's actually really hard to do the two sports she's now a canoeing uh, Paralympic gold medalist so um, yeah that worked out in her favor but the, the athletics had to disappear but for me, I I got selected for my athletics world championships and that had been my dream forever, you know, to get my athletics GB kit and to go to a world championships and represent my country. And that was literally a moment that I'd thought about, you know, for years as a junior athlete, like I never thought about getting my GB kit as a cyclist and you get it, to be fair, just the training. So I feel like it takes away that, you know, that special moment of getting your kit yeah that was kind of like for me like a really special moment but then that was also the moment that my cycling coach figured out how seriously I was taking my athletics so that was a bit of an awkward conversation and that conversation actually ended in uh, my head coaches saying I had to make a decision between the two sports because at that point in life you couldn't be an elite athlete in two different sports not my words so I um, I actually made the decision to move on with cycling I'd been really struggling with the kind of mental aspect of going from being kind of a, a decent, um, able-bodied athlete and running like certain times to then like being considerably slower over like the hundred meters, but being higher ranked in the world. Like it was a really tricky like situation for me. Like the ranking was cool, but at the same time, I really missed being faster. And like, I was constantly comparing myself to my old self and, you know, technical stuff which I didn't have with cycling. So I decided that I would um, kind of do the, the world championships and um, tick off that box of something that I'd already always dreamed of doing and hopefully, you know, walk away with a medal and then be able to put that to sleep and hopefully, yeah, just be content with that. And then I did the world championships, got to kind of the warm up and, you know, started warming up with my headphones on and just remembered the vibe and like how much I loved competing like at a high level and just kind of bouncing around just enjoying it um and then I you know did the heat and did a world record and then I won it just reminded me why I loved it and I was like actually I can't stop doing something I love and have loved for 10 plus years of my life so I did write a massive email to the head coaches the power program leads and um, just kind of said, oh, you know, I really want to do both sports. Paula Dunn, he was, um, or oh, is the um, athletics um, head coach. She was like, yeah. She's like, I kind of seen it coming. Like, so she spent the last like few weeks with me. She's like, and I think we can make it work. Cycling was a little bit harder to convince. But after I did, I got back and two weeks later and I went world lead in the cycling. Um, we had a, like a, a C1, like a Grand Prix type event. Yeah, did a world lead and rode very effectively, having not rode for very long, and it wasn't very pretty. And they were like, fair play to her. She's just, you know, done a world record in one sport and gone world lead in the other. She's like, how do we say no to this? How important is it for you to be, for want of a better word, a sort of role model for people who may have the same diagnosis or other illnesses? Is that an important part of why you do it? It's a massive part. I, I mean, it wasn't something that was like, I'm starting this because I want to empower other people. It's kind of something that kind of 
happened like started doing like media stuff just off the back of kind of my stroke diagnosis and then getting the ms and the more media stuff i did you know i started getting these little messages from other people saying you know you've encouraged me or inspired which is the word i don't necessarily like but like yeah inspired me to you know get up and do something you've inspired me that you know i can get out today i can walk the dog i can go to the shops and those kind of messages made me realize that there was more to being an athlete than just my goal of wanting you know gold medals and I actually was in a really powerful position where I could empower the people to not give up in the situation that I was in you know it's very easy to see a, a dead end or like a closed door on life and I really wanted to give people hope and for me like being you know a Christian a woman of faith I always believe that God has a purpose in every situation and it took me a while to realize what my purpose was you know in having my stroke and then my MS diagnosis and yeah it kind of unraveled that this was kind of what it was for me. Another thing that's clearly very important to you is uh, the issue of diversity in cycling and attracting people from a, a broader range of backgrounds into cycling. Um, what do you think the issue is there? Why are you why are you particularly interested in that? For me, I think as a child growing up, I was always pushed to kind of excel in any space I was in, just challenge uh, norms and perceptions. I realize there's like an unconscious bias within like something like cycling, you know, there isn't any of that diversity, you know, me and there's three black people on the whole of, you know, British cycling, that's, you know, across uh, track cycling, road cycling, BMX, mountain biking, all of those. And two out of the three of us got medals at the summer games. So, you know, it shows, you know, how competitive we are when we put our mind to it. Athletics on the other hand, you know, is, is, is very diverse for me having grown up and being always pushed to not let anything, you know, whether that be my sex, uh, the colour of my skin, my religious views, like anything to kind of hold me back. When I look back, I kind of realise that there's a lot of situations where you don't step into the situation or put yourself in that place because you think, you know, I'm not going to be accepted for the colour of my skin. I'm not going to be accepted because I'm female. Someone spoke to me the other day and they said, you know, they didn't want to go for a role because it was male dominated and I was like well you know just because there there isn't many females doesn't mean that you can't go and change that dynamic you can't go and be the first and kind of be the person that's going to empower the females to get up and say actually that's what I love that's what I want to do I'm going to go out there and do that so for me I think you know diversity is key like there should be no reason why you can't do what you want to do in life and we only have one life and we should be able to live it the way that we want to not the way that society says we should. Is that the thinking also behind you setting up the KC Academy? How does that how does that actually work? Similar thing. So for me I do two sports one of which is really diverse I guess and the other which I mentioned is not diverse at all. And that's not just, you know, I spoke about, you know, me and two other people being black on the squad, but that's also in terms of male to female split. Like you see that with it more within the management. Like luckily there is a large amount of uh, female athletes, but you see within kind of the staffing and the management that it is kind of more male dominant. And especially at the top, it's very male, white, middle class. For me in cycling, I've been really looking. I just kind of, the way I've kind of bolded into it and just flew to the top, I, I never felt like really out of place. It's only in certain situations that I feel out of place. And I don't want anyone else to feel 
out of place when they step in cycling or feel like they can't step into cycling because there are there are no other people like them and for me so I would never got into cycling if it wasn't for the fact that I got ill like I said it was just the sitting on the bike thing and I'd never even looked at the velodrome and I think a lot of young children and young people don't see themselves as cyclists like even like being funny like recently like seeing people getting into cycling I'm like yes like do it because before like I used to get like mocked for like cycling around and, like my liker and everyone would be like what is this Wally doing you know it's just so far removed from my community and I don't want it to be like that you know I feel like a lot of people in athletics that are kind of uh, just below like being able to make a, an international team they could be great cyclists but they just never see themselves as cyclists. So I want to open the door for them. And so my academy looks at the elite level. So we're trying to get people in at the, the top level. So it's kind of that gap, bridging that gap between being on the program and kind of that before bit, you know, having that support to be able to get themselves to that level. Without representation, it's really hard to get the numbers in at the bottom and at the grassroots. So there's just me right now, which is, it's quite lonely being up there just by myself. Um, so yeah, if we can get more people in on the squad, then there's more people for, you know, young children, young adults to be able to look up to and think, actually, you know, there's, there's that Kadena Cox, there's, you know, there's that Ash, Sam, Rihanna, like there's, there's these people that are, are you know, in the cycling world, like, uh, they look like me, I could do that. Like, that, that's what I did in athletics, like, you know, there was, Jeanette Quatches, there was Christina Hurrigu, Perry Straight, and there was these amazing women in sport that I saw, and they were British as well. And I thought, well, I can be like them, you know, that they look like me, like that, you know, they have similar like upbringings to me. And I think that's what it is for me with the with the academy. Kadena Cox, and if you're interested in finding out more about the academy, check out kc-academy.com. This is Ruler Conversations, brought to you by Lacker Bicycle Insurance, powered by the community. Why, hello there. Podcast interruption alert, but I will only take a few short moments to say that if you're enjoying this podcast, you will love the regular magazine. So if you're not a reader already, then you can subscribe at ruler.cc for as little as £6 per month. If you don't speak Northern Irish, that's six times 100 pennies. And for the price of a few coffees, you get regular columns from the wonderful Ned Bolting, myself, Orla Shinaway, and some of the very finest independent cycling journalism there is, all wrapped up in a wondrously beautiful publication. Go to ruler.cc. I'll leave you to it. So my name is Oren Peleg and I'm an investor in Lekka. Three things that really caught my eye. The first one is, is they're looking to change the insurance industry which is a very large industry and I think needs change. The second thing is, is I'm deeply passionate about getting people on two wheel. We need to address our congestion and pollution crisis and I believe that two wheels have a massive role to play in that. And the third thing is, I can see a growing trend around companies building on the strong communities that they have and I think Lacker's business model in the way they tap into the community of cyclists is something that's very much on trend at the moment. There's change on the way at Rouleur magazine. Andy McGrath, who's been editor for the past five years, is leaving. As always with this sort of event, it's an opportunity to look back and take stock. So how has cycling changed since 2017? 
Good question. I'm just thinking 2017. Well, to jog your memory, uh, Froome won the Tour and the Vuelta, and uh, de Moulin won uh, the Giro for Sunweb, which seems like a different era, doesn't it? And Peter Sagan probably got his third world title. Um, It feels very recent. This is the thing. Things change quicker and quicker that now, you know, Van der Poel, Van Aert, Pogaccia have come in. We're seeing these, these wonder kids who can do everything, really, like, I was saying to the Slovenian photographer yesterday that if he wants to win the Tour of Flanders, I think Tele Pogaccio could win the Tour of Flanders. You wouldn't say that about Chris Froome. He wouldn't even start the Tour of Flanders. And that's no slight to him. Team Sky uh, don't exist anymore. And they're not, they're probably not quite the number one team, you'd say, certainly for Grand Tours anymore, like Jumbo Visma or Team UAE. But that could all change this season anyway. That's really interesting. That's been good to see, you know, because, you know, for years we had a kind of weird Team Sky hate on social media uh, because they were winning everything. That's what happened. You know, like Eddie Merckx had that. Chris Froome had that hate, you know, from some people. And it's not really proportionate to their character. So it's a bit more even, I, I suppose, apart from Bogatcha winning everything important and that may, that may carry on. And then he may have to contend with not hate, but apathy or kind of boredom. And that'll be interesting to see. And partly, I guess, because of what's happened over the last two years, then things are a bit less predictable than they were, aren't they? The races seem more unpredictable. Yeah, like it, it, I think it's good that, like, like say, Wout van Aert was a favourite for the big classics last year, but he didn't win any, did he? Uh, he came very close, but he was kind of hamstrung by being the big favourite. Sonny Colbrelli, no one could have, no one would have seen that coming. That was a really special race through Bay. But it's still also nice when someone like Van Aert does what he did, for example, up and over Von Two in the Tour last year. Like, that's special. That's memorable. So on the day, the best riders still do it. And that's what we all want to see. But we also get a bit of unpredictability. And that mix is really nice. And I think we're also seeing um, you know, more in the old days, like maybe the Armstrong era, there'd be, you'd only see Armstrong on form at the Tour. That was a big race. There'd be a peak in May for Giro or a peak in July for the Tour, and that was it. Now we're seeing riders who are good through the whole year. And hopefully that means, you know, cycling's gotten better, it's cleaner, all the rest of it. That's really important too, fingers crossed. And what about the the cycling media? Because obviously, you know, we had social media in 2017, it's not that long ago. Um, But its it's influence has changed, I think, hasn't it? And also uh, the way that the teams themselves are now producing their own content in some ways they're kind of bypassing the old traditional media and going straight to the fans yeah they've certainly gotten more slick and i think it's kind of following maybe the football model more humor which is nice to see like i, I saw like a jumbo visma video the other day um where like primoz roglic was like ski jumping and um the winter olympics and, and cheering on their speed skaters but it made me care about something i wouldn't have even noticed but and it was the exact right tone, and that was really nice. I don't really feel like it's in competition, though. It's never been in competition. We, like, we still work with these teams. We're in collaboration. Um, so I still think when it comes to in-depth reporting and really getting to know the essence of, say, like a bike rider or a team or a race, that's our job, and that's what we do best, and no one can compete with us on that. At Ruler's executive editor, Ian Cleverly, uh, is also here. Ian, you've presumably spotted similar changes over the past few years. Well, just the thing I was going to comment on was the, the last two years and the pandemic has totally changed the way we work because 
access now is, I wouldn't say impossible, but it's very, very difficult where we would previously be able to go and spend, you know, two or three days with, with somebody and really, really do a proper, proper job. We've had to kind of, same as, same as everybody else, we've had to amend our, um, our working ways accordingly. And that's been challenging. Hopefully it will get back to normal before too long, but uh, there's, no, there's no guarantee that it will. And also because the teams have now got used to working this way, will they want us hanging around them you know they're keeping everybody at arm's length now it used to be quite common for people for journalists to go on team training camps and things in 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 Mallorca or wherever in about this time of year but presumably that's not happening anymore it may be feasible to an extent but what access you're going to get when you get there I mean this is uh, the kind of feedback we're getting back from the people that we work with is like yeah I could go but what am I going to get when I'm there because uh, the access is, is, is so much more limited. So, yeah, that's been a challenge, but an interesting one. You just have to sort of adapt and change the way of working. You know? I think there have been a couple of attempts to kind of replicate the success of Formula One Drive to Survive, which was a really big hit for um, Formula One. Um, Mobistar tried it, didn't they, with the least expected day, but that wasn't, <laughs> wasn't, didn't have quite the same impact, did it? I really liked uh, the Formula One show. That got me back into Formula One. Like, I was really into it when I was 10 years old but it's easier to follow you know like when you're trying to um, explain what the grand tours are and the monuments and there's this race and that race and that dynamic and it's hopping around time with a terrible title like come on at the least expected day probably sounds better in Spanish doesn't it yeah yeah but even then it's still really nice what they've done like they're still getting world tour cycling out kind of to the masses but I wonder you know just one race if you did the Tour de France if you did the Giro Roubaix Flanders, a cool classic season. You could do episodes or even like a whole series from the tour. And that would be enough. Like that, that would get a whole new crowd hooked on cycling. Especially if you really, uh, um, as I should, include the women's Tour de France, the Tour de France Femme. Like that's an open goal, really, isn't it? So maybe someone's doing it um, already behind the scenes as we speak. But that would require, presumably, the um, agreement of the UCI and ASO and everyone, and that's, that's unlikely, isn't it? Yeah, there's all these stakeholders, and they're protecting their toys uh, kind of very carefully. Um, but when you have on the table the chance to open the sport out to millions of people around the world, you know, that's, that's a pretty good bargaining chip. But it is going to come down to money and access and and rights, that kind of thing, it's going to be, like, it's really, like, decided by red tape. My feeling on the, um, the Movistar films was uh, much like the, the Billie Eilish documentary that I watched at the weekend, which was two hours and 20 minutes long. Billie Eilish does not need two hours and 20 minutes to explain her young life and career. Um, and the Movistar, the Movistar one... Just, just focus down on one, one, one thing. It was, too, it was just too broad. It was really hard to follow, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Even for someone who knows quite a bit about the sport, it was really hard to follow. So, Andy, looking back over those five years, I mean, can you think of a particularly favourite article or interview that you were, you were really proud of, really pleased to get in the magazine? There's a few. I mean, really, yeah, it's been almost five years as the editor, but it's been nine years like at Ruler. So I was looking back over the... We have a list of the features we've done, and uh, it's been almost 80 issues, so there's just so many, like, oh, yeah, that was great. Oh, that was really good, too. There's a few. I can't remember if it was in my editorship or not, but um, Morten Okbo and Jakob Christian Sorensen, the, the Crazy Danes, 
went to Las Vegas to to get high and and interview Floyd Landis and and Dave Zabriskie and um, oh like Ian's pointing that was his, but it still counts. It, it, it's in the nine years. Like I remember the expenses. <laughs> Who could forget? Like no other magazine, no other sporting magazine could do that. Like that's classic ruler. Even getting that story, getting that access is incredible. But the way they did it, it's like fear and loathing. But talking about the peloton and cycling, and we had and we chose to redact some of it because it was libelous, very libelous, very libelous. But it had every element. Like it was so interesting. And we printed one paragraph that was redacted. <laughs> there was just lines through names and offensive words and stuff. Uh, quite intentionally, but you could probably work out who he was talking about if you thought about it. <laughs> but yeah, the, like, the more you think about it, the more there are. Like, um, all the Shinui did a really powerful piece around Me Too and exploring it in cycling, really in depth, I think, before anyone else had properly and with some really sad, sad revelations. I think it's a topic we'll, we'll, we'll come to revisit quite soon in Rula. Um But that, that really cut through all the noise and it and rightfully got like a lot of um, attention. Is there a, a particular article that you read or interview that you really would have liked to have got into the magazine, but um, for whatever reason it didn't happen? Not to be kind of boastful, but we normally get our person. If we, if we want this person, well, there's normally enough time to chase them. But most of the time, they get it and they want to be in it. There is a Morton story, which was kind of postponed for the pandemic, was, was him with Sean Kelly on his farm, possibly driving tractors, then maybe alcohol involved, there probably would be. That sounds pretty, that'll be fun, but it's, it's not happened, and it's been on the kind of, on the table for 18 months now. That would be good, you know, really get to know Sean Kelly, like away from the commentary box. I mean, sometimes it does literally take years, you know, for us to, for, for all the things to align you know if the person's in the right place and the right is available and the, but um we're quite patient oh you know what i mean if it's a good story we'll wait for it also i swear every year we ask marion voss to come to the ruler show like, yeah. like literally the last five years and of course she's she's amazing and she's always busy and she's always racing like so she's normally racing cross and she can't do it but um i'd love to have her in the magazine and i'd love to have her at the show you know that's so if you're listening marianne Please come this year. <laughs> One of the um, sort of notable things over the past year or so has been the special issues, the women's issue, which I guess was the, the first of its kind and really made an impact, and then the empowerment issue, and then um, the current issue, which is Enable. What was the thinking behind them, and you know, why did you decide to actually devote an entire edition to a specific issue? The pandemic was a kind of catalyst that we realised we'd been in this formula that was fine, that worked. We still had interesting articles, but we'd maybe stuck around the pro-cycling season and based it on that for slightly too long. Then everything got thrown up in the air by COVID and we realised, hang on, we we have this freedom to change it up. We took the magazine off the newsstand, which helped, focusing on certain themes and maybe being more kind of progressive. And that gives you even more freedom. So we're not just telling road cycling stories, but cycling culture stories. Because I, I think rightfully that if it's a compelling international story about like, anyone to do with bikes, we're interested and our readers will be interested too. It's been really refreshing. Hopefully 
you know, we can even maybe change cycling just a little bit or at least open up people's minds. I think not everything has to be aligned with what people believe politically or ideologically. Like, it's nice to challenge readers occasionally. Like, I'm very wary of that, that if you're sat on the fence as a magazine and just reporting stuff, not giving, like, any kind of view, what's the point? We should be thought-provoking, even if that's sometimes occasionally negative. And we did get some negative emails when we did the women's issue, which is very predictable. Like, I got a few in my inbox when we did the empowerment kind of issue around diversity in cycling. When I get those emails, I'm like, that's a sign we're doing a good job, like, in a way. And, of course, I replied to everyone politely, whether it's positive or negative. And the women's issue in particular sold really well, didn't it? Yeah, we were stunned. I think it's fair to say that we hoped it would be hugely successful, but we didn't perhaps think on that level. It sold out three times. We got over 1,000, maybe 2,000 more subscribers, which is astonishing. It just shows there's, there was a gap in the market. There, there is a gap in the market and a huge interest in women cycling when you do it right. And we worked on that for a whole year. Like, that's probably one of the best magazines we've um, ever done. We slaved over it. We had so many meetings. But in a way, like, we were so focused on the process, we didn't think about the outcome. And then it kind of just generated this grounds full of interest. Um, Orla Chinui was a fantastic guest um, editor, amazing, great writer, couldn't have wished for more. But I think every feature in there was very readable, varied, interesting, everything you'd want from a magazine, really, like different, different illustration, different pace. So, you know, that was kind of gold standard stuff, you know. And the current issue, the Enable issue, what's the thinking behind that? It's kind of around disability sport and paracycling and the idea that sport is enabling, but kind of going beyond in, um, inspiration porn, that rather than saying these para-athletes are amazing, aren't they inspiring, they're just, they're just living their lives, they're just doing their sport. Like, no one says that Tali Pogacar is inspiring, even though he may be. Like, it just gets used over and over again. Like, so it's just telling their life stories, not focusing too much on the inevitable adversity they have faced, but on their sport or kind of on who they are. And it isn't just paracycling. We've got a wheelchair racer, we have a businessman. It just makes you interested, really interested in parasport. And that's really like, important, that there's so many stories out there. We've not even scratched the surface. I've always watched the Paralympics and been really into it. And it's just a shame that you only get that interest every four years, if that. It should be integrated in the World Championships in cycling. I think it will be next year in Glasgow. I thought um, Marianne Cligny's story was fascinating, like she's epileptic, you know, dealing with that. She actually had to switch racing license nationalities, which she was able to do from US to French, because the US team wouldn't permit her to race, but the French would, and that was a great story. I was just going to say, like, just thinking about waiting for people. When I checked my... So we have a long interview with Christina Vogel, uh, with Olaf Umbazart taking the photos. I checked my inbox, and he first emailed me um, with that idea in 2015. So <laughs> we, that's seven years in the making, and we finally did it. But it hadn't happened the first time for whatever reason. I think it hadn't happened the second time. We've known it's a really good story for a long time. Um, and she's amazing. The photos are fantastic. She's just so... Not that it matters, but she's super cool. She's just cool... She's, she's not dramatic about what happened to her in any way. She more than gets on with it. Um, what, what an awesome human being. 
Andy McGrath, and you can read about the remarkable Christina Vogel, Kadena Cox, and much, much more in Ruler 109, out now. Go to ruler.cc and subscribe. And that's it from this Ruler Conversations. There'll be a Ruler tech podcast here next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.